Well, here we are, folks, another podcast underway. And, of course, uh, we have Clarence Gaines Jr., a former assistant general manager for the Chicago Bulls, who's giving us uh, shedding some more light on the great documentary that we've been able to witness, uh, The Last Dance. And, uh, CG, we've had some fun over the last few weeks talking about each episode. And every week I say to you, man, that was better than the last one. But I think they're all now tied for first as this one really dove, dove into some things that I think people were anticipating. But to hear some of the responses was was quite interesting. So uh, give me your initial thoughts on what you had a chance to see, because you lived part of that or lived all of it for the most part. Uh, no doubt, Michael. But really what uh, hit me with this episode from start to finish. When I say episodes, I'm talking both of them together because they did a good job of tying episode seven and eight together in terms of the bond that existed between MJ and his father, James Jordan. Uh, you know, it basically starts with the, the death of his father and then ends with the um, championship, the first championship of the second three-peat. And, Michael wailing on the ground. And I looked at this whole two-part episode showing the grieving process that MJ had to go to, go through to be able to actually come back into the game of basketball. Uh, and that's what really hit me uh, about the, the, uh, the two episodes. You know, the, the father-son relationship is one you, you can certainly appreciate. You, uh, you and your dad were in the same business of basketball, but, but there, there's that, that fine line between father and son and, and just the, the mentoring that he got from his dad and helping him make so many decisions. How well did you know Michael's dad? Oh, I, I, I didn't say I knew him extremely well, but I've had conversations with him. I can remember when we were playing in Detroit and they stayed at the hotel together and we're in the front lobby. And uh, not only is Michael Jordan's dad in the the, uh, the lobby that I'm talking to, I'm also talking to Lamar Hunt, who a lot of people might not know, was a shareholder in the Bulls, uh, original shareholder. He never sold his uh, shares when uh, Jerry Reinsdorf um, took over the uh, majority ownership of it. Very smart man. But, um, you know, my uh, recollection of James was just a, a very nice, humble, affable uh, human being. And uh, But, you know, there's a toughness to him, too, and, you, and it comes out in the story. And, and this is you learn little nuggets about MJ that you didn't know before. And who knew that Michael Jordan, when he was in ninth grade, was suspended three times? Um, and it kind of gives you pause that just shows you the maturation process that takes place in an individual. And what did his dad say? If you don't stop this, I'm going to take the game away from you. I'm going to take sports away from you. And that really got through the MJ. And also, you know, so much is made of Michael in his 10th grade year of being uh, uh, cut, in his words, but like I said, assigned to the JV is, in my words, when you think of the immaturity, how immature he was as a ninth grade, and he was still developing as a human being, and he had a growth spurt after his tenth grade year, it gives you an understanding of why he might assign to the JV team in his tenth grade year. But that kind of tough love that a father has to give to a, a son, and some some sons take it, and others don't. I can remember in my father's case, uh, it's interesting me. Rick, raised by a man with the presence that my, my dad had. And I always had total respect for him. Uh, you know, he'd lay down the law. But I remember when I was in college, um, 
he I had gone up to see his team play, and he followed me afterwards. And I had got a speeding ticket uh, one other time, and he saw me speeding. And he said, and I was a sophomore in college at this time. He said, okay, you're going too fast. If I if you get another speeding ticket, you're not going to have that car. I, I learned to drive a lot more conservatively. <laughs> so I, I can relate to MJ on that level with, with Father Lane down below. You know, I had the same experience. And how about when you get those progress reports in college and they mail them home to your parents first? And if there was a time where maybe he didn't think the grade progress was going in the right direction, you get a call on that Sunday night and he would just remind you the things that you were about to lose if things didn't shape up. So I I think we were blessed to have fathers who knew how to get our attention. It only took one time. I mean, I wasn't a person that needed to be told two or three times when I knew I was out of line. So uh, I I know we, we both appreciate that. The, the whole death uh, and the mystery that surrounded it, what was going on with you at that point, and how were things being received within the organization? Well, I was, uh, you know, I, I would go between California and Chicago. I had residents in both places. In the summers, I mostly spent out in California because uh, you're always on the road anyway. You got the summer league basketball, and uh, I vividly remember that happening obviously and how it impacted me i can remember writing michael a letter and a note and receiving a reply back from him a few months uh, after that um it was just a total shock and then you know there's a lot of speculation that goes on after that you know how can your dad go missing for x amount of time without anybody being in contact with him and things of that nature but Neither here nor there. Obviously, Michael, an extremely tragic event. I think, I know we've all, I can't speak for you, but I know I've uh, slept in a rest stop before at night uh, in my 60 plus years of life. And to think that that could happen to someone is scary. And I know my wife uh, to this day will get on me whenever I I do that when I've made long distance drives. But sometimes you just got to pull over in that rest stop and take a little nap so you can keep on keep it on. Yeah, because at least uh, you'll be alive the next day. You you know you and I agree with you. I've done the same thing, and I think anybody who's traveled has pulled over to catch a few Z's because they couldn't go any further. It was certainly an unfortunate situation. What was the news like when it first came to light that he was gone? Well, uh, I mean, everybody in this country probably re- remembers that. And, uh, you know, it's just reaching out and wanting to extend yourself to Michael and, uh, you know, let him know that you cared. And, and, and you know, basketball is secondary. And, 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 and these two episodes, Michael, you know, the whole episode obviously centered around uh, the Great Bulls organization and team. But, for me, these episodes, basketball is secondary, and it, it's it's more on the the level of life. And uh, you know, there's a great book I read uh, many years ago, and I and I have actually reread it. Uh, it's called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck, and he starts the book out by saying, "Life is difficult. You know, life is hard." And these two episodes really hit on that theme 
Now, our country right now, we're going through something that is extremely difficult. And these events and these times shape you and they, they make you stronger. And the events that uh, happened over the course of 93 to 96, and basically in this uh, documentary is, uh, these two episodes are um, showcasing, are episodes that show Michael being able to grieve, but able to be strong enough to then go on and pursue what Phil Jackson says is his gift to society. And that's playing basketball, not playing golf, not playing baseball, but playing basketball. And it also helped the Bulls team become stronger for that second run, uh, you know, because we were on fumes in that first three P. Uh, you know, some of the things that are highlighted in the episode is that as far back as 1991, uh, which means the first championship. Michael Jordan talked to Jerry Reinsdorf about uh, possibility of retiring. So obviously the level that he played at and the pressure that he was under was something that, you know, we thought was seamless, but the day in and day out toll that took on him was obviously uh, something that uh, he wanted to change. And, uh, you know, Mark Vansel, who was a, author who wrote a book uh, with uh, Michael, I believe the book was called Rare Air, and you know, Michael had mentioned him in 1992 that, that he told him it was time for a new challenge and that he was going to push the refresh button. And, but because of the circumstances, going for a three-peat, uh, that was something the team hadn't done since the Boston, Boston Celtics and really in the modern era, um, the Olympic commitment. Um, you know, He felt committed to come back in 93. And then obviously, the uh, hits pops dying uh, after we won the third championship that just catapulted him saying it's time for me to make this decision. And, you know, we all have dreams when we are a, uh, a child and uh, Michael's able to fulfill a lot of that dreams through his desire and his perseverance and through his hard work. But one of his dreams, um, and maybe you can speak to this a lot better than I can because you follow the game of baseball. Uh, you know, I, uh, I loved baseball when I was coming up. I wasn't a guy who played it, but I loved all the sport. But, uh, you know, the dynamics in playing the game of basketball were totally different uh, than the games of baseball. And that Michael had this dream to be at a high-level baseball player. Um, and he was a young boy. He was able to carry that out. Uh, you know, it was nice he got that opportunity. Not everybody's afforded that. Obviously, it's unique circumstances in that the – um, Bulls management, Jerry Reinsdorf, as, as his aunt, and a major league uh, baseball franchise, as well as obviously the Chicago Bulls, the major league franchise being the Chicago White Sox, which uh, Michael Jordan became a member of. What was it? Did you see this coming? You, you mentioned he said it in the book. I, I always thought when you think about how much energy he put into practice and the games and the fact that, you know, because they were always in championship rounds and winning championships meant you were playing longer than anybody else. We always think about the physical toll, but the mental toll I'm sure was probably a bigger reason on why he needed to push the reset button. Oh, no doubt. It's, it's not only the, 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 the physical and mental toll of what happens on the basketball Michael Jordan's life was under a microscope. And, uh, I mean, you know, people sometimes chastise these players for having support groups and their 
entourage or posse, which some people can connote as a as a negative term. But in a player like Michael's case, it, it was it was needed, and uh, you know, he needed security because he's always being hounded, and you know you've seen that play out in the episode of how tight and how close he got with the security people, not only within the United Center, but he would hire those ex-cops and they would do personal security uh, for him as as well. Uh, but um, just that unrelenting pressure, you know, it was just time to push reset. And what was beautiful about the baseball journey, uh, and not only being able to fulfill the dreams, it allowed him to go and be seen, and actually more importantly, feel, I think, uh, normal being one of the guys and he's having to grind for everything. Um, Jerry Reinsdorf aptly says that, uh, you know, a guy of Michael's ability and talent, we wouldn't put him normally in a double environment. He'd be in a rookie league single A, uh, before he allowed to be come to that level. So Michael started on a level higher than he should have mainly just because of the PR element and that, uh, you know, they were a size of franchise they could handle, somewhat the demands of, uh, that was going to be hoisted upon uh, minor league baseball with this iconic figure. Um, but, you know, that was just a great environment uh, for Michael to be in to process that grieving and to uh, try something different that takes his mind off of the normal uh, uh, pressures of, uh, of life and, and sports. What about for you, working in the organization a when did you get the news and what went through your mind with regard to what next and what are we going to do because you know it's one thing to lose a player retirement free agency whatever but it's another thing to lose a person of his skill set so what was the mindset for you in in the organization at that point well uh you know jerry reinsdorf had an inkling um before everybody else did i think uh Michael had communicated to Jerry um, sometime within the summer that this is something he would consider. And then all hell broke loose as we're coming close to training camp. And he goes to this White Sox game and uh, he's up in the press box. And then word gets out that they're going to have a a press conference on what, October 6th. So that's right when training camp is going to uh, start it. But we had done a lot of legwork before that not necessarily knowing that Michael was going to um, um, not be a part of the team that year but because of our needs and a lot of people um, really and I I think it's important I'm going to spend a little time on it in our discussion because I don't think the documentary does a good job of telling how the second 3P as far as the start of that you know, which started basically in the 95, 96 season, some of the key pieces were put together in the 93, 94 uh, team that Michael wasn't a part of that achieved really a lot of success when he threw at 55 games, uh, which was astounding for a lot of people. But what a lot of people might think is that, you know, it was a pretty seamless transition from, you know, the, the 93 championship team to that 93, 94 team. And it really wasn't. There were six players on that team who played on the playoff, plus one who who wasn't. So there are seven players on the team and six new faces. 
And <clears throat> we needed depth at the guard spot because, you know, that third championship in 93, Trent Tucker and Daryl Walker were the, the backup guards, and they would no longer be a part of that team. So we were able to bring in um, Steve Kerr uh, on a make-good minimum contract of 150000 hmm. Steve probably has some other options, but the, in his mind at that time, he thinks he's playing for going to be able to play with Michael Jordan in a championship caliber team. Um, we also brought in Jaron Jackson. He was a guy who was uh, played with John Thompson, who we talked about before we got on the broadcast. And in Georgetown came out in the 1989 draft. Also, Jerry had Pete Myers uh, in uh, coming in. And Pete was a part of the Bulls team for one year in 86 to 87. It bounced around the league, but it was playing over in Italy uh, for the last two years before that. And all these guys came into the uh, – and let's not forget Bill Winnington as well. All four of the guys that I mentioned to you came into our training camp on minimum non-guaranteed contracts. And three of those guys became key integral parts of the uh, Bulls team in the um, uh, second second three feet, that being Steve Kerr and uh, uh, Bill Winnington. And I said three. The, the third person that I should mention came along later that year in a trade for uh, Stacey King, and that was Luke Longley. He came into the team like in I think February of that year, and that was a great deal for us. Uh, Luke had much more of a physical and imposing presence as a legit seven foot center. And uh, not only did Jerry trade Stacy uh, straight up for Luke, but he also got a second round pick uh, as a part of that. And uh, Luke definitely had more value and impact on the team than Stacy would have for that second three-peat. So those were three key moves that happened. And obviously, Tony Kukoc, uh, that was his first year on the Bulls. Again, Tony thinks he's playing with, going to be playing with Michael. And uh, oh, all of a sudden, no, Tony's thrust into a role that he's comfortable with. I think Tony started that year. And then once MJ comes back, he becomes the sixth man. So those were some really key things that happened Um after Michael announced that retirement, and that enabled that team to have the success that they did. Uh, I always get a kick out of, uh, I think, uh, a Porter comes up to uh, Phil and says, he says, now we're going to see how well that triangle works without Michael Jordan. Well, they saw how well it worked, and it's because it's a, a, a offensive system that uh, is depends on the everybody working together and you know pip is the ultimate selfless teammate who's able to get people involved most of the time jordan in the triangle was that if you come into a bailout situation you can ditch the triangle then mike can go (laughs) get you points any place anytime on on the floor Uh, and you need that kind of player and we're actually missing that kind of player on that team but Everybody working together, you know, the, the sum of the parts was uh, right in the hole. And everybody knows the uh, the success we had that year and in the playoffs and the great playoff series against the New York Knicks and the, the questionable call in game six that uh, Hugh the Hollins. team from uh, 
I have an opportunity to move on. I want to I want to go back to a couple of things. There was a gentleman who was quoted as saying um, it might have been Phil Jackson's greatest coaching job, and, and I'm inclined to agree with everything falling in his lap at one point, at one time. You you've known Phil from 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 day one as far as his involvement with the organization. You work with him in New York as well. And we talked about him before, but in this situation, what made him stand out so much in keeping this team's eye on the ball and getting to the conference finals? Uh, his ability to not be in the, the precious present and not focus on the past and that MJ's not here and saying dealing with the here and now and uh, that's his greatest strength and his ability to tell people to basically flush what happened the day before and let's focus on the present and get better and uh, uh, really focus on, on the moment. Uh, and I think that's, there's a key sequence and in, in, in the film, obviously, and everybody knows about it. And when Scotty decides not to go back in the game against the uh, Knicks in the, in the third game, the championship. And when Phil finds out, what does he say? Fuck him then. <laughs> and that's basically why he's so good. You know, you don't want to be with the group right now. I'm going to move on and we're going to find a way to succeed. And then we'll bring you back into the group. You know, he has the compassion, not to hold grudges. Uh, he brought up in that evangelistic household. So he believes in forgiveness. And uh, I think that kind of, that one incident capitalizes why Phil is, is such a success as a coach and and in, in terms of having that type of uh, ability to deal with the situation, manage it, and then move on. And one thing I want to say about that, because I didn't really notice at the time, because everybody talks about Tony Schott, everybody talks about Pitt being on the bench. But the guy who came in for Pitt, Pete Myers, throws the inbound pass. And if it wasn't for that beautiful over-the-top inbound pass that Pete uh, threw to Tony with 1.8 seconds to left, we might be looking at this whole situation in a different light. So he deserves a lot of credit for being ready uh, and present at the moment. And Pete's impact on that team, from a guy coming from Italy, um, played in two years, who had uh, not really established himself yet in the NBA uh, on a long-term basis, you know, he had a pretty decent career. He played he brought great energy to our team on the defensive end and uh, probably had the best career of his life that really set him up for future success down the road. He's been in the coaching business now for a while. And from what I'm told, he, he's pretty good at that. And, you know, he, the worldly experience you can't trade. I mean, it sounds like he's a guy that really learned from it and probably right place, right time in Chicago. Uh, for you, we, we touched on the triangle a little bit, which made the it truly a team sport. I was reading an article yesterday about Luke Longley and the relationship he had with Michael or lack of because as, as we move down the road, and I, I'll say the rest of it, but what did you think of Luke Longley and his, uh, his arrival there? I mean, he was a talented guy from New Mexico, a uh, really good player. But his mood swing, I guess, as far as him being a little bit too laid back, was something that maybe was misunderstood by some. 
Well, like was kind of interesting. You said you read an article. For some reason, I'm like focusing on Luke myself. And before we got on this uh, call, I had tweeted some things out on on Luke, and uh, I guess we were on the same plane. Luke caught my attention when he was at the University of New Mexico, and he played a hell of a game that I saw. So I'd always been a fan of Luke. Um, but Luke, my, you know, Australian mentality to basketball is a lot different than the typical American athlete mentality, uh, especially during that time frame. Now, everybody in the, the world has grown, and we kind of talked about this last, last episode in terms of the impact that the Dream Team and uh, the NBA has had on international basketball and how we benefited from that. Um, but, you know, Luke was Americanized to a degree when he came over to, and played college basketball. And, uh, you know, he's well thought of as a prospect. He went seventh in the draft. University of uh, with the Minnesota Timberwolves, but obviously they tired of him pretty quickly because they wanted to uh, get rid of him by the 1994 season. He was drafted in 1991, um, but Luke is the benefited from his experience with the Bulls. And in the article that I tweeted out, he actually talks about that. It's a shame they didn't have a opportunity to uh, to interview him but uh now luke was a key addition to our team and obviously um, michael's presence and the presence of um everybody in our organization and, and what i call the competitive culture that existed um with that, our organization there's a coach named uh, anson dorrance who I greatly respect out of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, coached the women's soccer team. And he talks about the competitive culture uh, and creating an atmosphere of that. And, and the way he goes about doing that is having people compete in a one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three situations and then charts it and ranks it. But our environment was a natural competitive culture. And, uh, uh, Luke understands that uh, his career is different and because of his association with the Bulls. And whatever you've read, and I've read some of the same things you, you read in terms of maybe he didn't always agree with Michael's methodology, but it brought back, in his own words, his love for the game. And, you know, there's no greater thing than uh, for a big Aussie to find love for the game of basketball and uh, uh, you know Luke was an important cog for us you know starting center uh, averaging about 25 to 26 minutes in the, in the playoffs he wasn't that most durable athlete during the regular season didn't play over 60 games really had a shortened career from that standpoint but those three years that he played with us were, were very pivotal in our being able to win three championships. Clarence Gaines is our guest on the podcast. We're talking about the last dance. And speaking of which, uh, let's talk a little bit about Michael's return and, and B.J. Armstrong kind of lighting that fire, not only getting him back in the Birdo Center just to fool around, but, you know, eventually he faces Michael in another uniform. So let's go back to the initial point where Michael makes his return. When did you get wind that there may be a possibility of having him back in a uniform? Uh, Michael, uh, I'm in the Birdo Center, 
and my offices are upstairs. I walk down in the training room and I see Michael Jordan getting his ankles taped. And I start having a discussion with him. And one of the questions Michael asked me was relating around his contract. Uh, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know, but Jerry Reinsdorf actually mentioned it during the, uh, the, the, the series is that Michael continued to get paid by, by the Bulls in the two years that he was off. And rightfully so, and Jerry Reinsdorf basically said, everything Michael did for our organization, he deserved that money. Uh, and really, you couldn't pay Michael Jordan enough. Um, I used to joke that Michael was a human ATM machine, that everybody in his presence benefited from him monetarily, including me, holy broadcasters and uh, restaurants. And, you know, the man was an incredible vehicle for the economy. And obviously, I'm glad he was able to monetize that for, for him himself eventually. But when Michael started asking me those type of questions, it's obvious. And you knew what was going on in professional baseball at the time, that they were in a lockout and strike. He didn't want to call across the ticket line. Um, Michael left the door open the day he retired from the Bulls officially in that press conference. And, you know, one of my responsibilities with the Chicago Bulls was I handled the preseason. And what, and I also decided what sites we were going to go to, I'd get the teams that we're going to play. And, you know, the following year that Michael retired, I planned on Michael coming back. So in the back of my man, I always had that. I was still scheduling big venues. He didn't come back for that 94 season. But when he came back in the, the 95 season, I shifted to uh, smaller facilities. And boy, did they get a, <laughs> a, a welcome surprise that year, like 7,000, 8,000 seat venues around the area. And, uh, you know, it was just a really dynamic thing. So that's my personal reference point to, uh, to MJ coming back, you know, just walking in the training room and office, seeing him there, knowing that this guy is ready to go based on the questions that he's uh, asking me and his presence there. So they get to the playoffs, and they're going to face the Nets and the Hornets. Now, people would say, well, how did they even get in the playoffs? Well, in in both cases, they were barely in the playoffs in one in one year, but they had to face the Bulls with Michael, and it's his first encounter with B.J. Armstrong. And and listening to B.J. No, no, talk, no, 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 Michael, no. B, B, well, let's let's know that you're talking about a different time frame because when Michael comes back, B.J.'s still on the team. That, yeah, you're right. My mistake. My mistake. All right. Yeah. And so we're going through, and that's the, the year that we play Orlando in the, in the second round. And let's deal with that. <clears throat> we lose to or Orlando, uh, which obviously is not really that big a shock because when Michael joins the team, we are twenty and twenty, right? And then we finish. I don't, I don't know. We like won forty-five games that year or something. Obviously, we're a better team with Michael than without him. And uh, you know, we lose that series. Uh, against the the magic just because that uh you know michael's just not sharp enough and, and the team is still learning how to play with them and uh you know a few things happening there it, it's easy to see that we could have gone on and 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 gone to the next uh series and beat orlando but you know give them credit they won it uh, they were able to win the close games 
Um, and then what you're talking about is um, the following year. And that's really interesting to think about. Now we're talking about the business of basketball, right? So we've gone through the 94, uh, 95 playoffs and Ron Harper was a key addition to that team that year. And that was before Michael came back. But Ron had a terrible year in 94-95. Matter of fact, in that playoffs series, we had 10 games, and Harper only played in six games in 40 minutes. And basically, Harper's legs were dead. And uh, we had made a commitment uh, to him for four or five years. But when Michael comes back, I guess he gives the fountain of use to Hart. Hart worked hard that summer, got his legs back, and the rest is history. He's able to come back in that following season, the 95-96 season, where he goes 72-10 and 10 and uh, start 80 games and be a key contributor. Uh, BJ at that time, and this is another thing about the business of basketball, there was the expansion draft. And BJ was left unprotected in – for whatever reason, uh, well, I know the reasons. <laughs> well, Steve Kerr basically could do the same thing that BJ could do at a lot less money. Um, and there are moves that we still had to make. We had good depth at guard. BJ was the first pick in the expansion draft to Toronto to go on to Golden State. But then that sets up what happens in the first uh, round of the second three-peat where you see the Charlotte. Uh, let's go against the New Jersey Nets and the Charlotte Hornets. Actually, that's not the second three, but that would be the, the last dance. You know, the, the Nets series and the Charlotte series that kicks off that. So they, they, they throw so much at you in these episodes in terms of moving around. It's easy to see how you can get mixed up. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt. Yeah. Hey, I, I want to ask you, you mentioned the 72-10 and 10 team. Um best team you ever saw i mean you know that was a an interesting run and i remember them talking about i think scotty looked at the schedule and realized you know we we may not lose for a while what, from where you sat what was your impression of that team uh there are two teams in my bulls tenure that i think were great teams they all were great teams but in terms of the pantheon of being the greatest team ever and one would be the first repeat. Uh, it was the year we went, uh, what, won 67 games and also went 15 and two in the playoff. It just dominated. You know, one, one part of greatness I heard somebody talk about, they're still thinking this Golden State team that won uh, 73, te- 73 games is better than the Bulls team. Now you got to win the championship. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, and let's look at the, the collective record from the regular season. Uh, through the championship series, and you know we were fifteen and three in the uh, that that first year out the blocks. Um, but Danny Age, I was listening to a Danny Age interview just he re- just recently had, and Danny talks about he was part of the Portland team that we played uh, during the run. He was part of the Phoenix team that we played in our run, and he said uh, those teams weren't nearly as good as his uh, Boston Celtics teams in the in the 80s. And uh, I think we won, again, you know, when Charles was in charge back in the day uh, in, the, in the first three-peat that, uh, uh, you know, they won, we won that series 4-2. to two. So that, that was his reference point. Uh, 
But uh, from my standpoint, I'm biased. Uh, obviously, that uh, with the collection of athletes we have and the MJ factor, he just pushes you and takes you to another level. Clarence Gaines is our guest. We invite you to stick around. We've got more talk from The Last Dance, and it comes your way after we have a chance to hear these important messages. Munganass St. Louis Acura would like to extend a huge thank you to our healthcare workers and first responders by offering them several service specials, including a free interior detail cleaning. You can call them today to make your appointment and let them help you while you are helping our community. Find them online at stlouisacura.com or give them a call 314-822-2872 for Munganass St. Louis Acura. We love talking to the president and chairman of Ameren, Illinois. He is Richard Mark. Emergency Operations Center acts as kind of a central command center, and everything is dictated from there. They tell the crews that are out in the field where to go, where the main breakers are to go to to de-energize the line, and then they verify that that line is closed, and they're able to tell five, six, seven hundred people that are working out in the field exactly where to go to make the proper repairs to get our system back on in a storm situation. Recent events have shown that life can turn in an instant. This has caused many people to realize that estate planning is essential. The Inskip Law Firm is here to help with everything from trusts and wills to power of attorney, deeds, and probate. They have systems in place to service your needs without having to have an in-person consultation, flat fees so that you know what you're paying ahead of time, and they make the whole process easy. Call now, 314-818-0344. Just a quick chat and you decide together what services are right for your situation. That's the Inskip Law Firm, I-N-S-K-I-P. And remember, the choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertising. I want to move on to probably one of the more poignant moments in the episodes was... uh. The mean streak, the other side of Michael that we have heard about, you had a chance to watch it, but to hear other people chronicle some of the things that he would say and do, and then they had the the uh, the video and the audio to go with it and how he would be in practice. Um, I'm kind of the belief that that probably goes on more with great players than you think, but because we actually had some actual footage of it, it probably drew more attention. Give me your impression of what you would see in practice and how Michael was to his teammates and just trying to get them better. Well, I'm really glad they had an opportunity to focus on this. Um, If you didn't know it, it kind of takes the the mask off of really what it takes to be consistently brilliant uh, at any level, but especially at the level that uh, the Michael's playing at. And, you know, we spoke about my dad, and he's obviously been a huge influence on me in a lot of different ways, and we talked about the game, and I've been around the game with him. And and the one thing he got across to me when I was a young kid watching athletes, and, the, and really the great athletes, he said, every great athlete has a mean streak. Some of them are able to mask it better than others. Um, like people don't think of Tim Duncan as probably having a mean streak. He comes off as this placid guy, but there's a fire that burns within him. And, uh, and somewhere in there, he's got that killer instinct 
And what I really liked about the episode is that they showed what really drives the competitiveness in Michael. What is it they come out with talking um, in, in terms of Michael when he opens up the um, episode seven talking about competition is his driving force. And I'm going to spend some time with this. Uh, a long time ago, I, a friend of mine introduced me to a term called cupire. And that's a Latin word. And it's the root word for competition. And what it means is to strive together. And I want to read something that I, I found today from a high school coach who, who took this concept and uh, I thought he did a good job with it. And he said, and, and this guy's name, by the way, is Joel Huster. I'd like to get credit, the credit's due. He, he uh, coached at South Titan High School in Nebraska. Uh, Brad Letterbetter, author of What Drives Winning, speaks to his performance skill and references the Latin word computer, which means to strive together. He suggests we actually need to view competition as a partnership. We need other people to push us to a level that we couldn't get to on our own. We strive together, magic and bird, bulls and pistons, you and your hardest working buddy. The examples of iron sharpening iron are endless. Instead of me versus you, we can replace the middle word versus and change it to me with you. Why the change? Simple. We are there to make each other better. Obviously, this can be said of teammates pushing each other to greatness, but it takes a notch up your opponent. Magic needed Bird to bring out his best, and Bird needed Magic to do the same. It becomes a partnership, so to speak. When you start to frame your competition like this, you no longer fear anybody. As a matter of fact, you start seeking out the best. Your appetite is to play the best at his best. The more you are challenged, the more you will grow. And that just sums up Michael's min mindset, mentality. He wanted always to play against the best, challenge himself to be the best, and to challenge others to be the best. And I think they did a tremendous job of showing this. And they used Scott Burrell as a foil. Scott is a very talented athlete. One thing that's come out, uh, you know, in interviews that emanate from the documentary is that Scott Burrell won only two players in the last 30-something years to be a first-round draft pick in baseball and basketball. But you can listen to Scott Burrell and know him and know that, in Michael's words, he's too nice of a guy. So Michael challenged him because he knew we are going to need him to make him more committed, to make him more determined and make him more passionate about this game. And Michael's ways aren't for everybody. But um, his ways is get you to a point where you're able to um, compete against any challenge. You know, when we talked about Jerry Krause and the uh, – memoirs are being published on a weekly basis. And he said one thing, and I'm going to quote it. And this is true for, about Michael. Michael was a built-in rookie 
and new veteran tester without par. So if you could pass through the Michael Jordan test, uh, you could pass through any test. And those who couldn't, Krauss had to find a way to get them off the team. And, and over Michael's tenure, the team is littered with teammates and also guards, especially in the early stages, who just couldn't stand up to, to playing, playing with MJ. You know, the the other thing that goes into that, and we touched on him earlier, if he has a different coach, this might have turned out differently. And, and Phil Jackson, obviously, being a former player and, and his whole mood and how he conducted himself was probably the right guy to know when to help pump the brakes if he was going too far. And I think that was alluded to in, in the piece as well where I think he had the right coach to even help him be the better player to make those other guys become better players. Michael, there's no doubt in what you say. Um, I put in my notes and talked to you about balance in that Phil knew what Michael did to other athletes. And the aspect of that, obviously, he liked. Because we're always talking about leadership, right? And that you have to have not only leadership from your coach and from top of your organization on down, but the most, most important quality you have to have is leadership within the team structure um, from player to player. And so Michael, and there's a segment in there, it's a beautiful segment where Michael talks about the price of winning. And you know, I think I might read it down the road just so that we have a permanent record on this broadcast of what he had to say for people who, who aren't really tuned in to, to that aspect. I think it's worth repeating. <clears throat> but there's a point where Phil would have to preach team camaraderie and say, all right, Michael, it's enough. And his way of doing that was what? With make, calling fouls on Michael, which pissed Michael off. <laughs> or when he got too much kick Michael out of practice when he busted uh, Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr in the eye. Yeah, I was actually at that practice. Tell me about that situation. I, I heard Steve Kerr give it, but you, you had a chance to see it. Tell me how that thing unfolded. It was basically as they say. Uh, you know, uh, Michael is getting on edge. Steve sets a, a tough pick on him, and I think Phil blows the whistle, and then all hell breaks loose the next time around. He said, now you really want to see what a foul is? He busted him. He came back at it, and Michael busted him in the eye. And you think about I wasn't close to it, but when you got that kind of macho testosterone floating around, and players got to break that up loose themselves. It was quickly bro broken up, and then Michael goes to uh, the uh, locker room, and then uh, he really thinks about what he did. Uh, uh, I, and I can remember people talking about it the day after, uh, a couple of days after, and that uh, Michael called up Steve and they made amends and they were able to move forth. And that was actually a positive, constructive thing that happened after the fact because it brought those two closer together in terms of understanding one another after able to talk things out. And Michael knew that this is a guy he can count on because he's not going to back down. And we've seen Steve Kerr's toughness from the time he was 
in high school uh, dealing with his father's uh, murder uh, in Lebanon uh, when he was a freshman at University of Arizona, uh, coming back from ACL injury uh, his junior year at the University of Arizona, um, negotiating his way through the early stages of his NBA career to have a long tenure that he's uh, eventually had, being on championship teams in Chicago, being on championship teams in San Antonio, being a championship coach. Um, and you think about, and he credits it. He says, I'm not only the, these Bulls teams, even though he was on the Cavaliers teams before and a couple others, a Bulls team that he took a chance on himself $150,000 make good contract that led to all the things that happened from that standpoint. So when people always focus on money, no, focus sometimes on opportunity where you can showcase yourself and put yourself in a situation that can take you to a higher level, which Steve actually did. You, you, and uh, you know, that's a beautiful thing to see. You know, I was going to ask you, um, there's, I don't know if they'll show it in this, you talk about the trust and respect he had for him, and I'm trying to remember when he hit the game winner in the finals, and they were talking on the sideline in a timeout, and Michael said, they're going to do this, do that, and Steve just said, I'll be ready, and because he knew he was going to get the ball to Steve Kerr, who was going to have the open shot, much like he used to do with Paxson, and, you know, when you look at those sort of situations, and there's a, there's some nose and nose moments certainly in pro sports and practices and I'm sure Michael's been nose and nose with other guys but that one seemed to have stood out where it really moved the relationship in a direction that was rewarding for both of them as not only being champions but certainly for Steve and his career and where we see him at today. No doubt, and obviously when you are the uh, career NBA leader in three point field goal percentage. Uh, you know, you're going to have some comfort in, in throwing through the ball to a guy who's able to, uh, to to make a shot under any circumstances. And so he's, a, he's obviously has proved himself to be a uh, pressure player, a pressure coach, and a pressure human being. Hey, I want to uh, able to deal with a lot of things. I want to go back to the moment where Michael started to well up as he started to think about, and, and the way I saw it when they talked about him being a mean guy and just being a, a tough guy to, to work with, it, it seemed to me that all the people he had dealt with and the things, the sacrifices he made as a person, because he had to change, you know, uniforms in a sense and be this bad guy. It, it seemed like it, it caught up to him and, and he was having a difficult time with it for a minute, but he understood. And as I mentioned to somebody else where, I think Will Perdue said, yeah, he was an asshole. And my response was, had he not been an asshole, you wouldn't be on this program because you wouldn't have been able to win in the manner that you did. Did you sense that as well, where maybe it kind of came back to him of all the things that he'd done and said and maybe didn't mean it, but he knew that was the only way he could get other people to be as good to be champions? Uh, first of all, I think Michael Jordan, one of the greatest things about him, he knows who he is as a person. And that is what you see. And he's not going to apologize for it. Uh, why the tears well up? Um, only Michael can truly answer that question. All of us are speculating um, when, when we look at it. But having been in that environment and know the price it takes, you, you sometimes well up because you know 
the path that you need to take and that the people around you need to take to be successful. And others might misunderstand that. And I think that's more in tune of, of what Michael probably felt. I think this is a good time for the people who might be listening to this just to revisit what Michael had to say uh, because what he said was gold. Winning has a price and leadership has a price. So I pull people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenge people when they don't want to be challenged. I've earned that right because my teammates came after me. They didn't endure all things that I endured. Once you join the team, you live at a certain standard that I play the game. And I wasn't going to take anything left. Now, if that means I have to get in your ass a little bit, then I did that. And then he finishes a little bit later. I never asked a teammate to do something that I wouldn't do. And to me, that's leadership, especially the last part of it, which is true. And they show what? They show Michael not only running what we call back in the day suicides, mm-hmm. what they now call more he was leading. The, he was leading the suicides. He was leading He's the suicides. Yeah. And that's a guy who's played in the league 10 plus years at that age, leading a running drill with some other guys that I know who quote unquote superstars might be sitting on the sidelines. And that epitomizes who he is. And as far as what you said about Will, who also got popped by Michael when we were at a place called the multiplex before the virtual center, which I witnessed as well. Uh, Will said, yeah, he's a hole. He's a jerk, but he also recognized tough love and how that, helped the team and it points in all our life where we need somebody to give us tough love now i've listened to a lot of criticism uh, about mj in reference to this and they talk about other players uh, who have done it a different way but i come back to saying to the naivety of fans if you don't think a great player and almost all of them who are great and I don't want to, I don't use that word casually. A lot of people do. There are very few great players that have ever played this game. But the greatest players have a mean streak. You know, that might be, you know, people want to always say Will Chamberlain is the GOAT. From a statistical standpoint, he's definitely up there. But was Will as nasty as he could have been? Bill, Bill Russell Owned him. has that mean streak. Yeah has that nasty persona that you need to win had that self-sacrificing game that he had great teammates and that's the, the argument a lot of people said Wolf didn't have as great teammates as, as, as Bill over time put them on each switch teams and who would have the better record but the reality is is they they were on the teams that they were on they owned it for a reason and the, the greatest winner in professional sports history probably had some of the same characteristics of, of Michael Jordan in reference to, to driving his team to a higher level because of the personality and the way he interacted with the ball. Clarence Gaines is our guest. Clarence, as we wind up things, give me your final thoughts and um, give me an idea of what you're looking for in this final two episodes. Wow, the, the final two episodes. Uh, we're just looking at the culmination of how the 
third and last season unfolded. And uh, what I really want to revisit is the Indiana Pacers uh, conference final in 1998. And uh, I can remember sitting by Jerry Krause um, and it was the deciding game. We're in Chicago. We're down double digits in the first half. And then we're down, I think, going into the fourth quarter. And uh, I said, this might be it. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that unfolds. Um, that's going to be fun. Clarence, as always, man, it's been fun to chat, and uh, it's uh, obviously we get a lot of people who want to listen to what you have to say, and they'll have a chance to do it at least one more time next week. So we thank you for your time this week, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week as we wrap up The Last Dance. All right, Michael. Take care. He's Clarence Gaines. I'm Mike Claiborne. Of course, this is ClaybesOnline.com.